Hello, my name is John Jacob. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, which in episode 22 features Dr. Sophie Fuller, who is the programme leader at Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance in Greenwich, South East London, and author of the Pandora Guide to Women Composers in Britain and the United States. She, along with the head of orchestral studies at Trinity Laban, previous podcast guest Jonathan Tilbrook, is behind the year-long project celebrating women composers in Trinity Laban concerts. That project is called Venus Blazing. The more podcasts I record with experts in their chosen field, the more I'm reminded of a simple marketing truth, which I suspect is overlooked by most. If I hear people who know their stuff talking passionately about something I know nothing about, My sense of curiosity is such that I'll be armed with sufficient information and confidence to head off and listen to something new. This conversation, recorded in October 2018, bears that out. It features excerpts from works referenced in the conversation by Dr Sophie Fuller. Full details in the accompanying show notes. My name is Sophie Fuller and if I have to define myself, I suppose I'd say I'm a musicologist. And most people look at me and go, what does that mean? What do you play? Is it something to do with music? And I have to say, well, no, my, my main, the main thing I do with music is write about it and try and explore it. Um, what I do here at Trinity Laban is I'm the programme leader for a kind of handful of the postgraduate programmes. So I'm kind of in charge of making sure that everyone's happy and I do lots it of... It's a very broad, <laughs> a broad yes, thing. That is, it's ridiculously broad. Are but... you happy? Yes. <laughs> yes, and you know, quite often people aren't happy so right. I try and make them be... Happy, happy again. <laughs> okay. That really trite, doesn't no, it? No, no, not uh, at all. But what would they be unhappy about? Oh, things like their timetable not working with their work commitments okay, or, right. you know, you okay. know, just kind of logistical things. But I also do teach here and I teach a lot about that relates to, if you like, the more academic side of our programmes. Um, so things like getting engaged with research and why that's something that's really important for all musicians. We have a whole variety of postgraduate programmes and some of them include specific research projects, some of them don't, but I think that for everybody on a postgraduate programme at a conservatoire, um, the idea of thinking about why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it, which is essentially what research is, is really valuable. So that's what I do here, um, and I can't remember what the other questions were. <laughs> why we're here. Oh, why we're here. Yes, of course, why we're here. Not in an existential kind of way, but more like, you know, what, what, what are we talking about today? We're talking about Venus Blazing, which is um, an initiative that we're running this academic year, so it started back in September and goes on for another year, although it's also really important that it's not just for this year, but that we have some kind of legacy from it. So what Venus Blazing is, is this initiative whereby we are committing that all our large ensemble, all our kind of big important gigs, concerts, commit to programming music created by women um, equally to that created by men, which is not something you very often find anywhere. Um, So we, we... We don't want to do it just by names. There's been a bit of a tendency for people to sneak in a five-minute piece by a woman and say, look, we're programming women composers. Um, 
the idea is where possible for it to be by duration half a concert will have been created by women or more um, but you know it's some things we're achieving that other things inevitably like soloist composition competitions sorry can't always guarantee that because soloists play what they choose to play and we don't want to enforce anyone to play anything they don't want to so basically we have a really exciting program of work that hasn't been heard generally as often as it should be uh, we've got quite a variety of composers um, we go right back to some of the earliest composers who were women whose works have survived. Um, another, moving on a bit from that, early 19th century composer Louise Farron, French composer, we're doing her third symphony later this term. Um, we're, we've got a specific focus on music by British composers from the 20th century and that's partly, I think, I suggested that and it's partly because that's an area I've done a lot of research into. Um, partly because um, I've always lived and worked in Britain, um, partly because I don't speak many languages other than English so it made sense for me to really research that area but mainly because this is a group of women um, the early ones 20th century start with a whole group of composers who were studying mainly at the Royal College but also at the Royal Academy in the 20s late 20s early 30s um, people like Elizabeth McConkie, Grace Williams, Phyllis Tate, Priya Rainier um, who are wonderful composers who were fairly well known, sometimes very well known at various points in their careers, but just aren't getting the airplay or the kind of CD coverage that you would hope that they would get. So things like Elizabeth McConkie's string quartets are so rarely part of the canonic string quartet repertoire. And yet, they're wonderful pieces. She wrote a whole series of 12 of them throughout her composing career. And they're, they're, it's a wonderful collection of string quartets. And in fact, I'm talking far too much here. <laughs> no, 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 please. No, this um, is exactly what I was hoping you would tell me. <laughs> but it was, it was one of um, Elizabeth McConkie's string quartets. In fact, her first one, which is written in the 30s, that... I heard, partly because I was being taught when I was studying at King's College by Elizabeth McConkie's daughter, Nicola Lafanue, so it was kind of in there. Um, I heard McConkie's first string quartet, and I was just blown away. And I thought, I have studied music for a long time, and I know about, you know, Bartok string quartets, I know about Britain string quartets, all these 20th century string quartets. Why don't I know about these quartets? And the, the opening of the first quartet just kind of grabs you. And it, it's a young work, you know, she was, it's an early work by her, but it's wonderful. And I just, that drove me to thinking, hang on, there's something not quite right here. I want to know why nobody listens to this. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. 
Why Venus Blazing? Venus Blazing. Uh, it sounds like a joyous name. It's Actually, a... whenever I hear people mention it, it sounds rather joyous and celebratory. But I may be missing something. No, no, not at all. Um, we thought long and hard about a name for it. And then one of our composers on staff here at Trinity Laban is Deirdre Gribben. And she has written a violin concerto called Venus Blazing that we're going to be programming after Christmas. Um, it's been played before but we're going to be doing that all important I think it's her third or fourth performance um, and she very kindly let us co-opt the name um, at, for this initiative this year of programming. What did you like about the name then if, if you co-opted it what was it about the name that made you go right right we'll have that. We wanted something really positive because this is a positive kind of celebration rather than a kind of moan about women not right. being heard um, so that and that idea of blazing is just so powerful um, and Venus is a word that kind of immediately makes you think of women without being kind of specific so I think it just kind of it just the minute we came across it everyone involved just went oh yes someone who <laughs> strives for fairness and I suppose this whole situation of women composers and my own personal work is in fact with a different group of women from the late 19th century, British composers again but ones who certainly no one has ever heard of um, and I just felt it was unfair that their music wasn't being heard um, and it struck me that we do know quite a lot about women artists and women writers and there's just so... It, things are changing um, and one of the things I've always felt about researching women composers is that it's like peaks and troughs. So actually at the end of the 19th century there was a lot of interest partly because that was the period of the new woman, beginning of the fight for the vote and everything um, there was a lot of interest in women composers and people were doing things like digging up Fanny Hensel, Mendelssohn's sister's manuscripts. This is late 19th century in this country. Then everybody forgot about Fanny Hensel until sort of the 60s, 70s, the second wave of feminism and people started getting interested in her again. 
So it's it's kind of it's, there's not a kind of steady line of progress where we're suddenly remembering women and keeping it going, but it keeps kind of having to start and restart. So there was quite a big push in the late 80s, early 90s. I was involved in setting up an organisation called Women in Music, which was fighting for all sorts of representation across all sorts of genres and so on. Um, and there was a lot done then. There was quite a spate of publishing um, of books, encyclopedias about women composers. Then things kind of went quiet in the first decades of this century and now in the last few years there's been a renewed push and there are all sorts of important initiatives coming from people like the PRS and um, the British Music Collection, Sound and Music um, and it's actually a very exciting time again. I'm, I'm interested in how uh, that, that motivation of fairness, I understand what you mean but I wonder how as an academic how you had to I'm not sure whether I explained this very well, but how you had to approach that study. Uh, how did you maintain a sort of an objectivity? I understand that fairness was important, but did you fit? Was there a tension between wanting to be fair and also needing to be objective? Do you, do you see what I mean? How do you how do you stop an agenda influencing your academic research? I think that's a really interesting point. Um, certainly, when I was doing my initial research, which was with this kind of fairly unknown group of women, many of whom were primarily songwriters, um, there, there came a point, and this is something I often talk to students about, where I was just amassing material. Um, so I had endless card indexes. This was, you know, before... Sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it's right up my alley. <laughs> card indexes of songs by women, right. um, lots of newspaper articles, magazine articles interviewing them, because a lot of them, again, were very well known. They were household names in their day. And I amassed all this information, and then I had a kind of blinding so what moment, where I was thinking, well, so what? So all these women wrote music. Why does that matter? You know, why should anyone else be interested? And I also perpetually had people saying to me, oh, this music can't be any good, otherwise we'd know about it, wouldn't we? You know, the good stuff always rises to the surface. And I would retort, the best way of retorting to that would be to just play them some of the rare recordings that there were of things, songs by someone like Maud Valerie White. Um, and they were always kind of a bit gobsmacked and went, oh, but that's beautiful, why don't I know that? Well, yeah. they gobsmacked, okay, here's, here's okay. a really, one of the things that I really struggled understanding how to ask a question. Were they gobsmacked, do you think, because on some level they were thinking, oh my God, a woman wrote this? No. Or was it I, just a, oh my God, I've never heard anything quite like that. Do, do you see what I mean? I think it was partly, it was partly, oh my God, why don't I know this? I can't quite place it. You know, I don't know who it's by. Right. Um, and in fact, I got in the habit of playing the music before saying who it was by. Okay. Um, so that... So there weren't all those kind of assumptions that kind of, oh my God, a woman wrote this. And, and I don't, to clarify, it's not that I'm not asking that because I think that women can't compose <laughs> it. It's just that, that no. there is an element of when, when all of this material and these, these new names in the repertoire going back hundreds of years uh, are revealed to you, there is an element of, oh, actually I realise now that hitherto I've only really regarded composers being male. 
and that's, think, maybe yes, that's a male yes. thing. Maybe that's not. No, no. I think I think that's a general thing. It's one of those kind of assumptions people make. It's a bit like that old kind of lateral thinking game about doctors mm. and the assumption is that the doctor is a man and mm. in fact the doctor is a woman. I can't remember how it goes mm. now but it's that kind of thing. Um, I think there, w- there are some women composers who really do something that's very different. Um, someone like Hildegard Bingen, you know, now very well known, much recorded. But she's particularly interesting because her situation as a woman meant that she didn't have the kind of training or opportunities that a man, a medieval man, might have had. So her music really is quite startlingly different because she didn't have the kind of education that a man would have had. The forces are here for you. (laughs) (laughs) They've come to get me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. She's talking about women composers. Wow. I think we should wait for, wait for it to get past. Yes. I mean, it's going away now. It's going away now. Hildegard Bingen. Yeah. Okay. I mean, she was she was such an extraordinary woman. And interestingly, I mean, she she was one of those polymath kind of people who did everything, um, including. I mean, she ran. She was in charge of a convent. And she worked with her nuns in the performances of her music. But that was just a part of her whole vision of um, the world. She wrote a book about um, health cures. She went on preaching tours at a time when women just didn't do that. So it was what her creating music for her specific vision of her religion and how it could be transmitted. Um, It was all for the glory of God. Um, She famously wrote of herself as a feather on the breath of God. Um, But it's, it's, again, beautiful music. And the way she writes is very different from the other kind of monophonic medieval chants that we know. Um, So she's an example of a woman who is quite startlingly different. Um, There are many other women who, someone like Louise Ferrand, for example, who you you hear this, we're going to be doing her third symphony, um, written in uh, 1830s sometime, I think. Um, You you hear it, and it's not startlingly different, but you're not sure who it's by, Mm, because it's mm. not any of the composers or the symphonies you know but she was she was there you know jobbing composer writing what she was writing
realised when I was preparing that I could name, I wrote them down, I could name four composers who I didn't think were alive, <laughs> I'm fairly certain, <laughs> aren't alive, and also only two living women composers. Right. Which, which, which I was rather, was well I've written them down fortunately, McConkie, yeah. Lutyens. Lutyens? Yeah. Lutyens? Yeah. Lutyens. Lutyens. Yeah. Uh, Imogen Holst. Yeah. I'm sure she did compose. She I know did. she did a lot of arranging for Britain. Um, and Ethel Smythe. I think yeah. I'm right in saying that Ruth Gibbs was a pianist. She wasn't a composer. She was a composer. She was a composer. Yeah. Okay, she would so, have been okay. fiercely. I, mean, I met her a couple of times when she was still alive. Okay. And she would. She very much saw herself. As a she would have been. She, she would have fiercely clarified. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. And she always felt. She, she's part of a whole kind of generation of British composers, men and women who wrote in essentially a tonal in an idiom um, which went way out of fashion in the 1960s. So they weren't programmed by the BBC in the William Glock era and they always felt very hardly done by. Mm. Um, but she, she's beginning to... There's a lot more attention being paid to her now. She was also a conductor. She conducted her own orchestra. She was quite a force. That's quite something, yeah. actually. Yeah. I'm reading a book at the moment written by the then general manager of the London Philharmonic Orchestra in the 1950s. And there is no mention of women at all. And, and it's, a, it's almost a terrifying book to read, yes. in a way. I mean, it's also terrifying because there are things being said about funding for the arts uh, then yes. <laughs> that still apply today, and that whole idea around music education. But that's a whole other discussion. Um, the 1950s, I think, were probably one of the worst points in the 20th century. Um, before the Second World War, there was a real buzz, um, just talking specifically about women creating music. Um, before the Second World War, the 30s, that whole generation that includes Lutyens, McConkie, Grace Williams and, and all of them, they were, they were doing really well. And there's a newspaper article I can't remember what the occasion of it was, where someone is ranking young British composers and Elizabeth McConkie is put first, Benjamin Britten is second, you know, and that was a kind of common view. These days, you know, Britten supersedes everyone. I mean, OK, there's the rest of his career to consider, but McConkie had an equally long and illustrious career. You know, she was chair of the... Society for the Promotion of New Music. She was involved in the Composers Guild. You know, she was very much a part of the world of composition, and yet, you know, not known to the same degree at all. Um, that makes me want to ask you the most difficult question of all, which mm. is why? Because, it, for example, there was a. Unfortunately, I. If you listen to all of the podcasts, you'll know that. I can't pronounce names very well, so I tend to not pronounce names. But there was a, uh, a woman, Polish composer, who lived between 1909 and 1969. Basically, the same time... Bakiewicz. Surname begins with a G. Oh, G? Ah. I think... Um, There's Gratina Bakevich. That's yeah, it. That's yes, it. Yeah. yes. I'm pointing at you. It doesn't really work for audio. <laughs> but yes, her. She's a wonderful And composer, she yes. lived at the same time. So I adore Britain. I'm fascinated by Britain. Yeah. I'm possibly obsessed by it. It amazes me that there is another composer who lived at the same time that I hadn't heard of until today. Yes. 
and I'm I'm interested in what your view is as to why that might be the case with her and maybe more widely. I have a theory, you see. Uh huh. No, but I'm not going to share that. Okay, okay, don't tell your theory. Um, I. I think it's a really complicated situation um, and a lot of it does have to do with with gender, with the fact that these composers that we don't know about are women, uh, were women. Um, having said that, of course, there are also a whole load of composers who aren't as well known as you would hope they might be, who were men. Um, just thinking about British ones, someone like Alan Rawson, mm, for example, mm-hmm. you know, why isn't he better mm. known? I think a lot of it comes down to access to knowing about the music and access to scores and parts and recordings and things. If concert promoters tend to go in a way for what the audience wants or has a kind of they know about and it doesn't take them too far out of their comfort zone. If you programme a concert of music by people that nobody's ever heard of, how are you going to get people to come? And in th- these days, you've got to make money by putting your concert on. So I think a lot of it is down to just basic lack of knowledge. I don't think there's some kind of big conspiracy theory okay. out there going, oh, we're not going to play any music because it's written by, that's written by women. So that then... <clears throat> OK, so that, that touches on something that I did want to push you on, which was it it feels as though it would be really easy to apply a 2018 narrative mm-hmm. onto the history of um awareness of women composers and i wonder uh, and, and actually applying that 28 narrative 2018 narrative may well be applicable in some cases i wonder how difficult that is to navigate for a musicologist like you Am I reading too much into that? Do you understand? First of all, do you understand what I mean? And I'm not entirely sure I do exactly. As a as a as a white male in mm-hmm. my mid forties, aware of um, the uh, the narrative around equality and representation, mm-hmm. uh, particularly over the past two years, which I don't disagree with the validity of it, um, I wonder to what extent it is difficult for a musicologist to uh, document the history of women composers uh, when you're aware of what the present-day narrative is around equality and representation. Yes, and that, yeah, I see, I see what... Quite a long question. It's quite a long question. <laughs> I think... I don't, I don't find it that difficult. Um, and maybe... I can explain it a bit by going back to that moment I was talking about, that kind of, so what, I've got all this information about these women, but why why should anyone be interested? What is it actually telling me about British musical culture in that period that straddles the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century? And I, what, I, what I did was I began thinking, OK, well, was there anything different about the way that these composers, who happened to be women, negotiated their careers? Um, there were certain things they couldn't do because women didn't do them at that time, like, you know, run at a conservatoire or conduct a choir. All the, all the ways by which male composers earned their livings tended not to be available to women. So... 
what what was the result of this? And the thing that I became really interested in was the performance space that women tended to use. Um, and there's a whole raft of women. Raft? That's a weird word. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just seeing this raft on the yeah. team. Yeah. There's a whole group of women who had access to performances and audiences through a kind of semi-private, semi-public sphere of what we might now think of as the salon, which is actually another area of my research now that's kind of grown and grown and grown. Because the salon, the musical at home, um, whatever we might call it, was a really vibrant, interesting space that is hardly ever talked about, certainly in this country. There's a lot more about French salons, say, in the late 19th, early 20th century, but very little um, in this country. It was a space where women were quite often the hosts of the evening. They quite often got their friends to perform um, and to have their music heard. Um, so it was a really important space for women to be heard, both as performers and composers. But it was also an important space for male composers. So, for example, Edward Elgar, a lot of his music was kind of first heard in that kind of space. And that's a, it's, it's, talking about it being first heard is a good way of thinking about it because it was a kind of tryout space for a lot of the composers who could then go on and have their works played at the Three Choirs Festival or in St James's Hall or any of the kind of mainstream concert venues. But it was, it was vitally important um, for all sorts of people to get to know the music, whether you're an audience or performers or other composers or the composer of the music yourself. Um, and this was very much a space that women embraced. So, sorry, this is a very no, no, lengthy no. answer to your question, but that struck me as a really important way of fully understanding British musical culture at that time that hadn't really been taken on board before. I mean, it's, a kind, it's an additional bit of understanding. It's not to negate all the studies that have been done of the Three Choirs Festival or any of those mainstream um, venues. It's also an area that's actually quite hard to research because if you've got a public concert, it mm. gets reviewed mm. and you know there are archives from a venue and so it becomes quite easy to find out what was played when and get some audience reaction or critical reaction. It's much more difficult for these private spaces, which is one of the reasons why people have kind of not really done much work on them. You, you, take, you get, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating because what you end up doing is reading people's diaries, their correspondence, um, and you do gradually begin to uncover this world, um, which can be really important. Five music, for example, was first heard in this country at private concerts and there were particular patrons um, who supported him and made sure his music was heard. Actually, interestingly, and do tell me if I'm going on too much <laughs> long. Um, no, 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 I'm just saying, carry on. <laughs> One of the important um, supporters of Foray were a couple, um, the Madisons, um, and Adela Madison was herself a composer. 
And one of the Venus Blazing concerts that's just about to come up is um, a concert of music by Peter Warlock and his contemporaries, one of whom, of course, was Adela Madison. Um, and we're going to hear some of her songs. Now, she is she's a fascinating woman, fascinating composer, who I'm a little bit obsessed by. Um, it was very hard to find out about her. Um, she was known to musicologists as a woman who they suggest Foray had an affair with. Um, in fact, that seems, when you dig a bit deeper, to have been unlikely. What happened was she went over to Paris as a lot of... She was an upper-class woman. Um, all her early correspondence is about, you know, going to balls and wearing jewels and things. But she then became... She, there was obviously a financial problem. She obviously lost money. She moved to Paris, I think, primarily to study music. And she studied with Faure, she knew Faure. I think the pupil-teacher relationship was probably more, you know, kind of friendly encouragement of her writing rather than a kind of, OK, I'm going to now have a lesson from you and I'm, you know... Um, and she became a composer, and she became reasonably well-known. Um, she wrote a large opera, Der Talisman, to a German libretto, which was performed in Germany, and got really, really good reviews. Um, there's a review I've quoted a lot from The Times, which says it's the best opera by a British composer to have been heard in Germany um, for decades. And that is... that includes works by Charles Stanford, Ethel Smythe, all the people who are better known as opera writers. I get the impression from when you're referring to uh, sources at the time that there wasn't that distinction made. It was a British composer, it wasn't a British woman composer, it wasn't a British male composer. No, they're, they're, that's not quite true. Okay, they they're, oh, they're right. tended to be a kind of focus on... on well, they didn't talk about British male composers, so that was the assumption. So if it was a woman, they would tend to remark on it being a woman. There are wonderful quotes um, from re reviews at the time when Ethel Smythe's early orchestral works were played. She, or, she always went in the programme as E.M. Smythe. So everyone assumed this slightly unknown composer was a man. Um, and there's a wonderful review, there's a couple actually by George Bernard Shaw whose reviews are always worth reading because he's so caustic and, and they're just hilarious, some of them. But um, there, are, there are reviews saying, you know, everyone liked this overture, but, you know, applause turned to absolute amazement when the composer came to the platform, took the bow, and everyone saw that all that enormous noise had been made by a lady you know so absolutely I think even more so than now there's an assumption that a composer is going to was going to be a man in the late 19th century even into the early 20th century and particularly if it was a composer who was writing large-scale noisy orchestral music songs which is to do surely is to do with I mean, I, I reflect that. I reflect on that and think, and I don't know, I don't know where it comes from. And I'm really sorry, but my my assumption is, well, if it's 
If it's for a big orchestra, this is going to sound so bad. If it's for a big <laughs> orchestra and it's loud and it's fast, then it must have been written by a man. And that I don't know where that comes from at all. Well, I, I think there's an assumption that that this is my theory. Okay, um, women are expected to be kind of dainty, pretty, um, small scale, you know, and so the music that they create is expected to be pretty, dainty, small scale. So songs, piano pieces, you know, that's fine, but anything loud Mm. and noisy. And you could certainly see it in the 19th century, but it's something that has continued. I think there are two examples. one of them is Minna Keel, who I don't know if you've ever heard of, but she was she was a composer actually of the same generation as McConkie and Lutchins, in that she was studying at the Royal Academy in the 1920s um, and writing kind of tonal music, really quite interesting music, but she didn't come from a wealthy background. Her father died. She had to go and work in the family business. And in the 1990s, it was a big media story um, because what happened was when she was in her 70s, 80s, she started having composition lessons again and blazed onto the the scene in the 1990s with a large-scale, very noisy seemingly kind of avant-garde it wasn't really avant-garde but it was not a piece of tonal music um it was an orchestral piece that was played at the proms conducted by oliver nutton um and people were just it taken aback partly because minna keel was very short very old very sweet in inverted mm-hmm. commas i mean she wasn't sweet at all assumptions that I didn't realise I held about composers and I imagine that because I hold those assumptions then probably quite a lot of other people do as well uh, and and bizarrely even though it's a wonderful thing Venus Blazing, uh, this is in no way a criticism, but it, it, it's considerably more thought provoking than I expected it to be even before I've started yeah. listening to any music and I wonder whether other people have said that to you um, and and whether whether you were expecting that no one has actually said that to me i mean i think does that make me weird no i don't, I don't think it makes you weird i mean i would that is one of the things that i would hope that people take away from this you know kind of a kind of questioning of you know why am i surprised you know why mm. am I, what, what what is going on in my head what mm. did i think and now i've heard 
this bit of music, that bit of music, you know, I've, I've been introduced to composers I hadn't heard of before. You know, why hadn't I heard Cause of Because on, on, on one level, as a listener, as a punter, I think, oh my God, there's a whole, there's a whole other section of repertoire that I've not heard before. Brilliant. Um, and that's fantastic. Uh, but then it also holds a mirror up to my own um, society-driven assumptions and sort of conditioning, I suppose that's what I'm saying. And I'm wondering whether you anticipated that would occur when when you started on the Venus, Venus Plazing project or indeed at any point during your research? I think so. I think I'm sort of quite used to it because I've, I've taught kind of, you know, courses about gender and music or specifically, specifically about women composers, which is a different thing, of course. Um, and I've, I've, so I've been aware of working with students and the kind of assumptions they bring and then kind of what happens when those assumptions get a bit shaken. Um, and I just can't help thinking it's a good thing. Mm. I mean, I again, going back to, you know, I talked about fairness but I think the other thing that I've always done is kind of question everything. If someone says to me, you know, this is the way it is because X, I kind of tend to look at them and say, well, couldn't it be because Y? You know, I, I'm just a bit awkward. And I suppose as a teacher, that's one of the things I want any of my students to be is awkward. You know, ask awkward questions. Ask me awkward questions. You know, like, why are you so obsessed with women? You know, what, what is it? You know, and that, can, that makes me think and makes me talk to them. And Do you experience any resistance in your teaching with some students? And if so, what is that? What's the nature of that resistance? I don't, because I tend to teach kind of courses that people opt on to. So there's a kind of... Um, there's a kind of assumption that they've chosen to do it because they mm. want to do it, they're interested. It might be because they think, I'm not sure that this is, has any validity at all, I want to. So I don't. I mean, I think people... It can be very hard to shake off the world that you know and you think you know and it's all quite nice and ordered and there's a canon of great works and particularly if you're a performer, you know, you, you and particularly particular kinds of performers, particular instruments. Um, you know, you want to play those great canonic works, so you don't like having things thrown at you from the sidelines, you know, saying, oh, why don't you play this? You say, no, I want to play Beethoven and Bach. And Although some orchestral musicians who I've known for a while would say that actually they've become rather rather jaded playing the same work over and over again. So, yes. so actually with a, with a wider range of repertoire, then that's a that's a good thing although that obviously depends on people programming the repertoire and yes. selling the tickets yes yes which is, gets us back mm. to that whole kind of what, what are the problems yeah I mean I think so and I think if I mean I I would hope that one of the things that Venus Blazing can achieve is just to get the students here to start thinking hang on let me just explore repertoire a bit more. It doesn't necessarily have to be women. It can be, you know, there is so much music that isn't heard. I mean, going back to McConkie and Britain again, one of the things that was thrown into kind of sharp relief to me back when I was first getting excited about McConkie's first string quartet, at about that time, they, they published an edition of one of Britain's very, very early string quartets, written when he was a child. 
And to me, that was just like a slap in the face mm. because, he, the, mm. you know, this is the 11, 12-year-old Britain. Yeah. This really kind of childish work is really important and we're going to publish it and everyone can totally. play it. Totally. You know, which it's is, important in because it's Britain, not yeah, exactly. it's important because it shows the, the beginnings of his musical development. No, it's yeah. just, just yeah. kind of... We can put the name on it and therefore yes. it's important. And yet... There was me kind of getting excited about McConkie and all her quartets, some of them written absolutely the height of her powers, and they're not known, they're not published. You, it's really, you can get hold of them, but it's So does that, does that, that, this then touches on the theory that I have, does that then suggest that it is, because of an extent, that, that sort of relative um, downplaying of women composers' achievements is down to... Um, publishing houses and record companies sort of going well they're not saleable because not very many people will recognize the name so we'll go with a recognizable name uh, that's that was my theory i think i think not that's, terribly well articulated no i think that's a large part of it you know and i'm in a way i can i can understand that mm. you know we all have to make a living and it can be, it's all very well to say, oh, let's do things differently and, you know, there's all this wonderful repertoire. But you have to be pragmatic and you have to build a career or build a company, whether it's publishing or record company, that's actually going to work. Um, but I also think that people do like a sense of discovery mm. um, and that to hear something new and kind of a bit gobsmacking can be very valuable. Um, it, it, it's treading a fine line between giving people what they know they're going to like and then kind of sneaking something else in mm. and getting them to at least hear it and then kind of question themselves and start engaging with the fact that there's probably a wider world than they thought there was. Many thanks to Sophie Fuller at Trinity Laban Conservatory of Music and Dance for introducing the Venus Blazing Project and a whole host of previously unknown women composers and their works for me to listen to. It was an extremely enjoyable and thought-provoking hour spent in her company. Please rate, like and share the Thoroughly Good podcast. It's available on Spotify, Audioboom, iTunes and various other platforms. Far too many to mention. Please also get in touch with me to tell me what you think about this particular episode by emailing me at john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me or tweeting me at thoroughlygood. There's also a Facebook page to follow and you can find me on Instagram at thoroughly underscore good. Thanks very much for listening.